1: This episode contains scenes from arrests and harassment of people with autism. While factual, some listeners may find the audio disturbing. Please take care when listening.
2: Donald Triplett's golf swing begins with his thumbs. Standing a little too far away from the ball, with his legs spread wide like the letter A, Donald licks the pad of each thumb. First the left,
3: and then the right.
2: Before he wraps his fingers in a full grip. Then he lifts the club over his head as though he's hanging a banner. He holds that pose for a moment, and then he heaves the club head in an arc back to earth until it lands between his feet and stops. Then he yanks it back above his head again and pauses, and with one final stroke, he commits to contact.
3: The ball is gone, and Donald, bouncing at the knees, peers down the fairway, admiring his shot.
4: Don has a really unique uh, uh, waggle and swing, and if you've ever watched him go through the motions of that, it's difficult to take your eyes away.
3: That's Sid Salter. He's the former publisher of the Scott County Times. He's known Donald for years.
4: After all of that's over, he hits it right down the middle of the fairway. Don is is a remarkably good golfer given the fact that uh, he goes through all these gyrations before he makes contact with the ball.
2: For decades, it was a given that there was only one place you were gonna find Donald in the afternoon, Forest Country Club.
3: The first time we accompanied Don to the golf course a few years back, he wore baggy khaki shorts and a green knit shirt with a bucket hat in pink camouflage pulled down tight over his ears.
2: Forest Country Club is not a pretentious place. For one thing, membership is actually pretty affordable. And the Brick Clubhouse fronts on a well-cared-for, but mostly flat course that's been carved out of the Mississippi woods. On any given day, the roster of players you meet out on the fairways includes lawyers and mechanics, bankers and truckers, salesmen and farmers, and, of course, Donald. Here's Sid again.
4: And, you know, golf courses, particularly rural South uh, golf courses, um, a lot of the colloquialism in the South is jinking. You know, you, you're giving somebody a hard time, criticizing their shot, uh, uh, picking at them about not making a put. Don not only participates in that in his way, but he, he sort of good-naturedly accepts it and, and kind of gives as good as he takes. So you have golfed with him. Oh, yeah. Uh, Quite frankly, I didn't play with Don a lot because I got tired of getting beat. (laughs) I couldn't stand the heat.
3: (laughs) From iHeart Podcasts, this is Autism's First Child.
2: I'm John Donvan.
3: And I'm Karen Zucker.
2: Episode 5, Donald on the Move.
3: Golf plays a huge role in the story of Donald's life.
2: Donald started playing back in 1956, when he was 23 years old, just out of college. He had steady employment at the bank at that time, and he had a roof over his head, living with his parents, still in his childhood bedroom.
3: He quickly fell in love with the game. It's not hard to see why. The game plays to so much of the things that make him comfortable.
2: You know, think about it. Golf has a certain kind of sameness built right into it. Basically, as a player, you're doing the same thing over and over and over again.
3: Swinging a club at the ball, and the ball just sits there. It doesn't move until you move it.
2: And there's no clock adding pressure to get it done. You you can play the game entirely at your own pace,
3: it's consistent. And you are in control of every
2: movement. Plus, there are numbers involved. Fifth green, 18th green, three handicapped, one under par, one over par, hole in one.
3: It's a game of routine and ritual. Every hole starts with a tee shot. Every round ends in the same place.
2: Sid told us that Donald could take or leave the whole social part of the game. In fact, most of the time, Donald golfed alone. Sid thinks that for Donald, it's a sport he was most interested in playing within himself.
3: Now that sounds abstract, but I know what Sid means. When Donald plays golf, he is seeking something. It's an activity that brings him fulfillment and meaning.
2: You know, some of the people on the autism spectrum whom we've met in our reporting talk about finding that, that one thing, that pursuit that winds up being all-important because it brings comfort and meaning to life and uh, even a relationship to the world around them.
3: And for some people... It's about finding a way to connect to the people around them.
2: Amy Gravino, whom you met in an earlier episode, is one of those people who was able to realize she had that thing that allowed her to just be her. I was
3: this misshapen ball of dough that hadn't had yet to be baked, if you will. Um, And so I, I, I couldn't offer an opinion on myself that didn't come from someone else. The, the the one outlet I had, I would say, because I did have an outlet, I, I, I did have a way that I was able to kind of tap into whoever that Amy Gravino was in there, and that was through writing. And I began writing when I was 10 years old, and it was poetry initially. It was like a, a valve opening up and giving me a way to kind of just let go of, of all the things that I was feeling. But it was the one thing that I was good at, apparently. Um, my you know My parents would send my poems into the local paper, and it was something... That, finally, I I could actually be good at. And our brilliant friend John Robeson's account of using his intense interest to navigate the world is especially resonant.
2: You really cannot pigeonhole John Robeson. So he's designed electronic games for Milton Bradley, and he's also designed guitars for rock stars. He runs a high-end car restoration business. He's also an author and a speaker and a neurodiversity scholar. And for a long time, he was an activist who did research and produced reports for big government agencies.
5: Well, for all of my life, before I knew about autism, I was keenly aware of my social deficiencies. I knew that I didn't have uh, friends and people didn't want to invite me places or do things with me.
3: John was diagnosed with autism at 40 years old. Um, I just
5: thought that I was like a second-rate person. And, um, and I still, uh, I guess it still bothers me um, when I can't get things right. But I have been really lucky in my life because first when I was, you know, in my early 20s, I was able to engineer um, musical things that would sing for the world and and people appreciated those things and at least the people in the music community would talk to me about the things that I could speak to and the things I could do and I took up um, fixing cars and people would come to talk to me about the cars I took up photography and people would talk about the images and, and then I began writing about autism and people talked to me about that. But in every case, the work that I created spoke for me. And, and for me, that's how I have overcome the disability of not being able to figure out what to say. I don't figure it out. Other people say things to me.
2: John grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts. Both of his parents were college professors. The university setting was essential to John being able to find his way. Eventually, John's skills got him noticed by some big-time musicians.
5: Well, one of the big things in uh, Amherst every year was a spring concert in a stadium at the University of Massachusetts. And uh, they would um, bring in bands, and, and so I went down there Because I was by that time working with local bands helping out. I saw these guys backstage that had like amplifiers pulled out of the racks, they were struggling with them. And of course by then I started to feel like I was confident about knowing about musicians equipment. And I walked over and I asked what they were doing and and the guy says, you know, he's trying to get the amplifiers working and do I know anything about phase linears? And I I said, yeah, you know. I didn't really know much about them, but I was confident, and um, and he uh, invited me up, and and I was able to do something that he thought was clever and useful. And he says, uh, he says if you can fix these things, I got a whole uh, room full of them down at our uh, at our place in New York. You can come down there and work on them. And it turned out uh, that he was from a sound company called Britannia Row, who was. Um, what uh, Pink Floyd had set up to put their equipment out on the road when Pink Floyd wasn't touring. I went down and started fixing their gear and then I started modifying it and building more gear and, and I became their American engineer. And one day uh, we had folks from KISS come into the studio wanting to rent a monitor system. And while they were in there, I saw uh, H. Frehley, a guitar player, Uh, digging at a Les Paul guitar with a chisel. And I went to see what was the matter with him. And he told me that uh, he wanted to make the guitar blow smoke and fire. And I, you know, wanted to just like get it out of his hands because I thought he was destroying it. And I, I said, well, I could do that professionally. And he asked what I would do. And I said, well, we could you know, put smoke bombs in it. We could put lights in it. We could insulate it so it wouldn't burn up. And, um... And he had Gibson send me a guitar, and from that beginning, I uh, designed all of the uh, instruments that uh, Ace played that shot fire, shot rockets, lit up, blew up. Anything like that, I made them. And I also did uh, uh, work on the amplifiers themselves.
2: John Robeson's own intense interest, his work with amplifiers and guitars, got him hired as part of the crew for bands like KISS, that work got him away from Amherst, and it got him out into the world.
5: I went uh, I went all over, yeah. Went all over uh, United States. I uh, went to England, went to Germany, went to
3: Canada. You know, John's story is fantastic, and so is Amy's. They are both success stories.
2: And it's great to hear them telling their stories in their own
3: words. But the spectrum, it's so broad and so complex— that almost half the people diagnosed with autism can't tell their own stories. Because literally, they can't speak or communicate their life experiences in ways that most of us are capable of taking in and understanding.
2: It's important to remember that each person on the spectrum also has a story, and a way to connect, and something to say.
3: Even if it's not completely obvious. Yet sometimes, it needs the rest of us to go more than halfway to really understand.
2: Of course, Donald's unique way of connecting to the world around him, the golf and the numbers, it was always pretty easy to see where he was coming from.
3: After the break, Donald learns his own lessons about freedom.
0: And takes flight, literally. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does.
1: From Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess, the 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again
6: And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Store on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Donald
2: was 27 years old in 1960 when he first learned how to drive a car. His mother, who had been his teacher all his life, taught him how to operate the family's Ford Fairlane. A massive barge of a car. And we've imagined how this might have worked. First, with the engine still off, Mary would have talked Donald through the whole routine. Checking the mirrors, where to put his hands on the steering wheel, how to speed up, how to slow down.
3: And then, because Donald is not at all tall, he would have pulled himself forward so that his chin almost touched the steering wheel. It's easy to imagine him tenting up as he put the key into the ignition and brought the car to life. And imagine how this moment must have felt for Mary as Donald turned out of the driveway for the first time.
2: This man sitting next to her once seemed like someone incapable of recognizing danger. But Donald had come so far from the boy she once worried about as being possibly hopelessly insane, as she actually once thought. And now the road was his whenever he wanted Donald wasn't content to stay close to Forrest. As an adult, Donald packed up and left town on holiday at least a dozen times every year.
3: In those days, it was pretty common for small-town newspapers to report when somebody went out of town. Donald would go to, say, Dallas for a few days, or New Mexico, and it would make the society page of the Scott County Times. He became known for his travels. Here's his lifelong friend and neighbor, John Rushing.
7: Uh, oh, oh, traveled a lot ourselves, but nothing like him. Uh, it's a chore for us to go somewhere. I'll tell you for sure. Now, Don, <laughs> he's uh, he, he's ready to go at
2: note notice. As a rule, whenever he could, Donald kept his trips to six days, exactly, because he tried to be back in Forest for Sunday Bible study. He always traveled alone. By the time we first met him, when he was in his late 70s, Donald had been to at least 28 American states, including Hawaii. Many of them several times. And he'd been to more than 36 foreign countries.
3: The list is incredible. Germany, Tunisia, Morocco, Hungary, Dubai, Spain, Portugal, France, Bulgaria, Colombia.
2: He's taken snapshots of the pyramids in Egypt, the New York City skyline, the Grand Canyon...
3: With your travels, what was the best part about going to Turkey?
7: Oh, I just enjoyed going there and seeing the Turkish belly dancers perform and all that good stuff.
3: Of all the trips that you've done, could you tell me like a couple of your favorite ones?
7: I, I, I enjoyed going to go into Greece. I, I, I'd fly to the to the airport in Athens and take either, either a shuttle to the hotel I was staying or sometimes taking a taxi from the airport the hotel.
2: It's again typical of Donald that when he talks about his travels, he brings the conversation kind of around to the logistics of his travel rather than to the experiences he had and the people he met and, and the flavor of it all.
3: What Donald isn't mentioning there is that he meticulously documents his trips, taking thousands of snapshots, iconic buildings and statues and mountaintops, the ones he had seen on TV or read about in books. When he returned home from his trips, he organized all of his photos in thick albums until his bookshelves were filled with memories.
2: Then in the 1990s, he learned to use a computer, and Donald went back through all of his albums, and now he's assigning numbers to each of his trips, and he's creating a database and an index that makes it a lot easier for him to find specific photos.
3: It's something about the categorizing, the organization of it all, that brings him pleasure.
2: Also, that's how he makes sense of the world. That's how he kind of makes the world his own. You know,
3: the travel part of his life is something that doesn't fit neatly into the idea that Donald doesn't like change. Because, of course, every place is going to be different. And maybe that shows how people with autism do grow and
2: stretch. But it's also true that Donald established a kind of routine within the experience of traveling with going away for just six days all of the time. And in fact, many of the countries he went to, he visited over and over again. So there is kind of a routine there. Or maybe he just really liked going to these places. Donald was a world explorer, but he always came home to Forest, where he lived in his parents' house his entire adult life. Forrest provided
3: Donald with a sort of perfect combination of circumstances for a man like him. Life in a small community afforded predictability, tranquility, and safety. The pace was slow. It was quiet. One day was just like the next.
2: And Donald, by virtue of his wealth and his parents' social standing, found himself in this embracing web of relationships that come along with small town life, where everyone knows more than a little bit about everybody else. Forrest just accepted Donald. As Donald's friend, Sid Salter, says, and I'm paraphrasing a little here, in a small southern town, if you're poor and different, you're just different. But if you've got money and you're different, well, then you're eccentric.
4: The whole discussion begs the question of, uh, had Don's family not uh, had the bank, uh, if there had not been the respect for uh, uh, Mr. Beeman Triplet that the community had uh, would Don's life have turned out the same way? If there had not been the network uh, of support, uh, the job at the bank, all of those things, would Don's life have turned out? Would he be able to travel the world alone? Would he be able to uh, function without uh, oversight or a guardian? Uh, and I think the answer is maybe uh, because uh, one of the things as a journalist that I observed uh, and it's true in Mississippi, it's true all across the South, I think it's probably true uh, all over the country, woefully inadequate uh, funding for uh, mental health and that's for uh, more pronounced things like schizophrenia but when you talk about something as uh, delicate and mysterious as autism, which we still don't understand a great deal about as a society, and we certainly don't know how to deal with people who have profound autism, uh, I think it would have been very difficult
2: if Don had not had that. After the break, we talk about the cost of autism misunderstood.
0: Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess, the 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again, the First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about indigenous women's disappearances. And the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanika on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm
6: Hannah Storm and my podcast And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: As we piece together Donald Triplett's adult life, we want to take a moment to point out that today, so much of the conversation around autism is focused around young kids and and that's progress but there are so many big and difficult challenges facing young adults and grown-ups on the spectrum they are so vulnerable in many ways
2: a lot of people on the spectrum don't have the sort of family or community support and awareness that Donald Triplet has benefited from you know Donald's parents had his back always and his community everybody from his neighbors to his teachers to the police department they all knew that Donald had special needs And John Robeson and Amy Garvino, they're both excellent communicators. But there are people on the spectrum who don't have that kind of support and who cannot speak for themselves. People who are more challenged and have difficulty in complicated social situations. And that can have consequences, dangerous consequences. You know where that comes up a lot? It's where autistic people come face to face with the police. When a cop doesn't know a lot about autism, that's not a good mix.
3: There are so many terrifying stories about police officers misunderstanding or not having the proper training to effectively interact with people on the spectrum. Think about it. A lot of autistic people do things that police are trained to see as suspicious behavior.
2: You know, they might not look people in the eyes, or they might need more time than most people to answer even simple questions. They might run away when somebody speaks loudly or sharply at them, or they might lose it if somebody touches them.
3: Any one of those has the potential to trigger an officer's instinct that they're dealing with a suspicious situation, when all it is 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 autism. An innocent autistic person whose behaviors the officer is translating the wrong way. This is a huge deal.
2: Drexel University published a study in 2017 that estimated one in five teenagers with autism was stopped and questioned by the police before the age of 21. Five percent were actually arrested
3: and researchers at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia found that people with disabilities, including those on the autism spectrum, are five times more likely to be incarcerated than people in the general population.
2: Even a rudimentary Google search Tells a devastating story.
3: A Salt Lake City police officer shot and seriously wounded an unarmed 13-year-old autistic boy last night. The boy's mother called
0: 911. Tonight, and an officer with the Vacaville police, police Department out. is in hot water after video footage of him punching a 17-year-old teenager with autism was posted
3: by the boy's father. lawyers the from the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office and the parents of an autistic teen shot 11 times by a deputy have reached a settlement of one million dollars.
0: Sheriff's deputies in a New Orleans Suburbs sat on a shackled, obese, severely autistic
2: 16-year-old boy for nine minutes and put a chokehold on him for part of that time until he died. According to a federal lawsuit filed Thursday against the sheriff and seven deputies in the death last year. And now that police are wearing cameras a lot more than they used to, we're starting to see and hear how some of these encounters can go off the rails so quickly. We saw that happen in Kodiak, Alaska, in 2015.
3: They were two tourists. They were visiting Kodiak, staying at a bed and breakfast in a quiet residential neighborhood. They thought they saw a man trying to get into their rental car. So they dialed 911.
2: Nope, that was wrong. He was not trying to get into their rental car. The man they saw was Nick Pletnikov, who was actually pretty well known around Kodiak and extremely well liked. And he's autistic.
8: He was a... Uh... Born super healthy, nine out of nine were his APGARs, and he was ahead of his milestones until he wasn't. And uh, he developed autism at about 18 months.
2: That's Nick's mom, Judy Pletnikoff.
8: And he's worked awfully hard, harder than you you can imagine, to um, achieve what he has. And he's productive, and he contributes to the community, and um, pays his taxes. He's just an all-around fine, upstanding citizen.
2: That's for sure. Nick has a business engraving ID tags for dogs. He sorts and transports recycling for a number of different clients. He volunteers at the hospital, also at St. Mary's, which is the school that completely embraced him when he went there as a kid. Now he volunteers there setting up and breaking down the lunchroom.
3: These were all sorts of small triumphs for Nick. For him, learning new things is hard. He takes a while to process speech. He needs a lot of support day to day. But he was getting more independent all the time. Oh, he's fabulous. We really
8: believed, so he moved into an apartment that's attached to our home after high school, and, and we really believed that he would live independently, and we would eventually leave the house and somebody else, this house where he lives, in the apartment, um, that we would leave this house and somebody else could move in and everything would be just lovely. Um, so, so he was doing fabulously. He could shop for just a small list of items independently and um, check the mail, obviously, and cook himself a light meal and more or less get himself ready in the morning, need a little help. But um, he was doing really quite well.
2: And just like a lot of autistic people, Nick likes routines. And one of his routines was to head down the street every day... To collect the mail from the communal postal point
3: and another of his things he would check on the cars parked along his way his mom says he was making sure all the doors were locked
2: and one of the cars he stopped at belonged to those two guys from out of town and they thought maybe he was trying to break in which he was not and they thought also that he had been drinking which he had not been doing
3: and then everything goes off the rails
2: they've called 911 and now the police show up and they approach nick and Nick doesn't have the skills to explain himself in that moment. He also doesn't make eye contact with the officers. And apparently all of this comes off to them as suspicious because they put hands on him really quickly and they spin him around so that they can handcuff him.
3: Put your hand down your back, and Nick, confused by what's happening, all of a sudden is terrified. He starts pleading with the cops. You can hear that on the police camera recording.
0: Hey, can I go, please?
2: And he's twisting his body as this is all happening. And so, what the cops see is not an autistic guy who is just scared and confused. They see someone not cooperating. And then they're down on the ground with him. And they're flipping Nick on his stomach to get control over him. And one of the cops is leading into his neck with his forearm. And you keep hearing Nick saying something as they're all wrestling on the pavement. He's apologizing.
3: I'm sorry. And what's especially disturbing is that one of the police officers knows Nick. He keeps saying, "Nick, stop!" But we later learned he was really new to the force, and he doesn't step in and tell the other officers to stop. Nick keeps saying, "I want to go home, please. I'm sorry." I'm sorry. Nick,
7: <laughs> stop. Get on your
3: stomach, man.
2: And scared. what happens next is really hard to take.
3: They're holding Nick down. He's terrified. Not calming down, but getting more and more agitated.
2: And one of the officers pulls out his pepper spray, and then he says... And then the cop blasts him in the face with the pepper spray, right in the eyes. One of Nick's neighbors is watching all of this happen from his house, and he yells out to the cops, you know you've just scarred this kid for the rest of his life. Another passerby runs to let Nick's mother, Judy, know what's going on.
3: Judy rushes to the scene. She sees police cars and an ambulance and Nick surrounded by police. And this is before she realizes he's been pepper sprayed. The officer in charge speaks to her, and you can hear Judy trying to stay cool. It's what some parents of people with autism do when they're dealing with authority figures.
2: Is he...
0: He has autism.
2: And at that point, the mistake realized. The officer tells her about the pepper spray.
5: Okay. Uh, we pepper sprayed him.
2: Her outrage is palpable. A mother's outrage.
8: Which, uh... My God, I can't believe you pepper sprayed him.
2: And she insists they take the cuffs off. And they do it. And then I... Nick was... S-
8: stunned and not able to get himself home at that point. So I kind of put my arm around him and guided him home. My daughter came, she's a doctor, that was very helpful. We cataloged his injuries. Um, He had bruises the size of footballs on him. He had a great big kidney punch and scrapes and blackened. I mean, he was
3: beaten. You know, Nick's most serious injuries were invisible and they're still there. Remember, he had been doing really well But now, his mom says... He lost his ability to take care of himself. He didn't brush
8: his own teeth again for seven months. So um, he just lost a lot of skills and the trauma, the the need for him to protect himself and be safe is what took over his... That's the sympathetic response. That's what took over his brain. I won't soon forget what his psychologist told me if you've got to protect him because these re-traumatizations while they won't kill him will make his life very difficult and boy she was right because one time he was so bad um it was so bad he'd completely lost control he really thought they were coming to get him again um and he uh, pulled the doorknobs right off the car trying to get out trying to get out of my car and i could barely get him home and um he just went so far backward again
2: So these kinds of misunderstandings and these kinds of mistakes, the consequences are real and they're lasting. Also, let's be honest that when people of color who have autism get into these situations, the danger for them is likely to get a lot higher a lot faster, especially when they're outside of their own communities where people know them.
3: And there are some deeply ingrained problems to address here. But at least we're seeing that many police forces around the U.S. are trying to do better with the autism piece of it. There are programs now that train police to recognize and understand autism better and to modify their responses when they encounter autistic people. For starters, understanding that their behaviors do not necessarily warrant suspicion and to work better to communicate and de-escalate the situation.
2: In fact, the Kodiak police did get some training after all of this happened, but it's a problem that it's often only after something bad happens that the corrective steps are being taken, but they are being taken. And we saw the teaching that the police are getting about autism. And it's actually pretty basic. That's why it's also pretty useful. So there is some progress in this area, but there is still a long way to go. There are just so many stories like this.
3: I definitely have that worry about my son, Mickey. I can see him innocently stumbling into some interaction with police where they misread him, like, say, his inability to explain why he's in a particular place at a particular time or something like that, and the whole thing going downhill really fast. In fact, there was a time when he was on an airplane and a baby had been crying for hours, and that just hit one of his sensory buttons and he became really agitated. And an agitated person on a plane sets off all kinds of alarms. But in this case, there was a flight attendant who got that Mickey had autism, and he helped calm him down. As for Donald, it's another way he was lucky. In a place where everyone knew him, he was, as far as we know, never subjected to that sort of trauma, another gift of the community that surrounded him in Forest.
2: In 1962, a group of parents in Britain founded what would become the National Autistic Society, the first autism organization in the world. The early
3: 1960s were the beginning of a sea change in autism. Parents became activists and began getting organized. In 1964, a small group of mothers of disabled children begins to campaign for their children's access to public education. In
2: 1969, at the annual meeting of the National Society for Autistic Children, Dr. Leo Connor gives a speech in which he states declaratively that blaming parents for causing their children's autism is a bogus idea.
3: Which is a huge relief because really, almost from the beginning of the diagnosis, clinicians and doctors had heaped blame on the parents, especially on mothers. It was the beginning of the end of the refrigerator mother theory.
2: The next decade, the 1970s, is pivotal to the rights of people on the autism spectrum. In 1971, a lawsuit in Pennsylvania demanding access to public education for children with developmental disabilities is successful. Other states follow in rapid succession. In 1975, the Federal Education for All Handicapped Children Act is passed. And after TV personality Geraldo Rivera exposes horrendous conditions at the Willowbrook State School, an institution for the intellectually disabled in Staten Island, New York, the scandal leads to the closing of Willowbrook and the shuttering of institutions like it.
3: As the 70s turn into the 80s, the world learns significantly more about autism as a condition with a strong genetic component. Data is published that supports the argument that autism should be described as a spectrum. And in 1981, the English-speaking world is introduced to the research of Hans Asperger.
2: And at the same time, autism began to reach into the popular consciousness in ways it hadn't before, as Temple Grandin publishes her best-selling book, Emergence Labeled Autistic, which was about her experience having autism. In
3: 1988, Dustin Hoffman stars in the Hollywood smash hit Rain Man, which put autism on the map in ways it never was before.
2: In the 1990s, the timeline moves on. This decade saw the creation of the first organization to fund biomedical research into autism, the National Alliance for Autism Research. And then other organizations pursuing similar research are launched and begin winning grants. The 1990s also signals the birth of a new kind of struggle for rights and representation. A self advocacy movement is born. The foundation for a thriving neurodiversity movement is laid.
3: In the two decades since, our understanding of autism and the space created for people on the spectrum has expanded exponentially.
2: But Karen, you know what I think is so interesting? While this change was going on, while the fight for the rights of people with autism was being waged, while the scientists were studying the disorder, and while activists were pushing for recognition and access and opportunity, while this idea of neurodiversity blossomed, you know what Donald Triplett, Donald T, case number one, the kid all of this started with, was doing for all of that time? Living his life. Exactly right. The world that was focused on autism had no idea about Donald Triplett.
3: And he had no idea about them.
2: Absolutely none. It's as though Donald and his parents also existed in their own silo in that little town called Forest. You can see their insulation from all of this change going back to as early as 1949 when Dr. Connor wrote his third article on autism. Dr. Conner never mentioned Beeman or Mary Triplett by name, but he described them and the other parents of the children included in the study in not really flattering terms. He kind of described some of them as harsh and cold and mechanical.
3: We believe Mary and Beeman Triplett were completely oblivious to this characterization. And so it went, Donald living his life protected by the comfy little bubble of small-town life in rural Mississippi.
2: Donald had no clue about the whole story of autism that was swirling around the world outside of Forrest, like the development of groundbreaking therapies or the confusion over the theory that autism was somehow tied to vaccinations. He had nothing to do with the continuous broadening of the definition of what constitutes autism.
3: Ten years after Beeman Triplett's death, Mary Triplett died of heart failure. Here's Oliver Triplett, Don's brother.
7: I think she was a little bit concerned about the fact that Don might have some problem managing his affairs in the event of her death, which occurred in 1985. And about a year or so prior to her demise, I happened to be visiting my mother and she expressed these concerns to me. And I pointed out to her, I said, Mother, I really don't think you have anything to worry about because Don has demonstrated he's a good manager of his money he travels all over the world, goes places, and does a lot of things that I wouldn't dare do. And said, he does just fine. And after the discussion was over, she said, Oliver, you've convinced me that Don will do just fine. I said, OK, That's great. So she was, she was satisfied in her own mind that Don would be able to fare well for himself.
2: That's a great story. Isn't it, though? I'm John Donvan.
3: I'm Karen Zucker. Autism's First Child is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcasts, and based on our book and documentary film, In a Different Key.
2: Written by Alex French, senior staff writer at iHeart Originals. Story editor is Matt Riddle.
3: The podcast is produced by Alexander Ritchie.
2: Original score composed and mixed by Elise McCoy. Editing and assembly by Kaliche Yamoye. Scoring, mixing, and mastering by Dan Marshall. Voiceovers by Julia Christgau and Michael Coscarelli. Executive producers are Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, Elsie Crowley, and Jason English. Special thanks to Ray Conley, Ernie Inderdot, and Will Pearson.
1: School of Humans.